Amen. Good morning, church. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great privilege to be here. We absolutely adore our church. We love our church to death. Um, yeah, we're just thankful to be here, and I can't tell you what a privilege it is to stand here where really my mentors stand week in and week out. Uh, we're thankful for the pastoral staff that, and the elders really in the church that lead us here at Mercy Hill. And give them a hand. Thank you for them. <clears throat> so for my 20th birthday, I decided to ask my parents to join me in jumping out of an airplane. I'd always wanted to go skydiving, and for some reason, that seemed like a good day to do it. So my parents, being the loving parents that they are, and my, who was my girlfriend at the time, thankfully my wife now, Whitney, uh, we all jumped in a car together, and we drove south of Jacksonville to load up in a perfectly good airplane and jump out of it. It didn't go quite as well as we expected, so the buildup was great. We were there, and we watched the instructors pack up our chutes, and we tried to listen to their safety briefing as adrenaline began to pump through our bodies. And we went up in the airplane and went from a hot summer day to freezing cold, over 10,000 feet in the air. And then you come to the door, you look out, and I actually talked my instructor into letting me flip out of the airplane. And so when I flipped out, I remember looking up at the bottom of the airplane and thinking, this is real. <laughs> I really did this. But it was an amazing experience. We laid out. 120-mile-an-hour wind in your face. It's loud. It's intense. And then we, we were in the clouds, so it was foggy, and then we came through, and it's like perfect vision, a view of the earth that I'd never seen before. Completely terrified, completely excited, all together at once. It was an experience like no other. At least that was my experience. Once we got on the ground, my dad and my girlfriend at the time we're standing there, and uh, everyone began to look up, and the second group was jumping out of the plane, and everyone began to notice that somebody's chute had gotten tangled and began to twist and spin violently in the air. Everyone was worried and looked up, and thankfully the instructor knew to cut the chute and to open the reserve, and that worked. Thankfully, they got on the ground, and we were actually really thankful when they got to the ground, and we realized that someone was my mother. My mom then explained to us her perspective of the whole experience. She said the violent spinning caused her to become sick, and she began to vomit the whole way down, and the instructor's yelling in her ear, please vomit over your shoulder and not in my face. <laughs> and we thought it was all over, everything was good, we jumped in the car, we're safe, we're on the ground, we're leaving the parking lot, my dad slams on brakes, he opens his door, and he begins to vomit out the door. Apparently... Pulling the parachute back and forth on the way down made him sick as well. And my wife, or girlfriend at the time, didn't want to make them feel left out. So she began to vomit in a cup on the car ride. And I thought, you know what? I needed some Sonny's barbecue to calm my nerves after all of this experience. <laughs> really thoughtful of me, right? So we went to Sonny's, and I was the only one that ate lunch that day. <clears throat> what in the world do you think would cause someone to do something so wild, so dangerous, at the risk of injury, sick, sickness, and we hope not ever, but uh, even at the risk of death. Well, for me, it was easy. The thrill, the adrenaline was worth it. My family, I think, would tell you a different story. Turn with me today to 1 Kings chapter 22. 
1 Kings chapter 22. And we're going to look at some things, I think, that will help us to see that the risk is great, but the reward is greater. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you some background on where we are in Scripture. So God's chosen people, Israel, God's chosen people, Israel, had divided up into two kingdoms. We had the Israel in the north, and we had Judah in the south. And the king, I want to introduce you to some of our characters, the king of Israel, the king of the north, was King Ahab. King Ahab was known for being a very, very wicked king. He was married to Queen Jezebel, who was probably more wicked than he was. And she's known for all sorts of evil. She brought in the worship of Baal and Asherah into the kingdom of Israel. She was a prostitute and a murderer. And he not only married her, but condoned all of her practices. In fact, it says in 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, I believe, that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any of the kings before him. Now, in contrast to that, we had King Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah in the south. And Jehoshaphat was known as a good king. He was more in the line of his king, kings like his father, Asa, or King David. It said that he walked in the way of the Lord. Now, he wasn't perfect, as we'll see in our story, but he was known as a good king. The other characters in our story really are just 400 prophets from on Ahab's side, and one lonely prophet of Yahweh, his name is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Today, in our story that I'm going to tell you and we're going to walk through in this chapter, I want you to see that there are costs of obedience in the life of Micaiah, but there are equally or worse costs in the life of disobedience of Ahab. Let's jump into our story. So the beginning of our story, what we see is King Ahab approached King Jehoshaphat and asked him to go to war with him against their common enemy of Syria. Now, Syria had taken a town called Ramoth-Gilead from them, and, and it was formerly a town in Israel, and Ahab wanted it back. Well, Jehoshaphat agrees. He says, I'll go to war with you on one condition. We must inquire a word from the Lord first. We must hear from God on whether or not this is a good idea. So Ahab says, no problem, a word from the Lord. I can do that. Tell you what, I'll bring 400 of my best prophets in and they can tell us. So Ahab calls 400 prophets. And it's important to know here that just because you carry a label of something like prophet doesn't mean that you actually are that or that you are good. You see, these prophets had no problem telling Ahab exactly what he wanted to hear. All 400 of them agreed. Being labeled as something doesn't make it good. I think somebody wise in history said a tree is known by its fruit. Well, Ahab's prophets gave the expected prophecy. He asked, should we go to war against Syria? And they said, yes, you should go up to war against Ramoth-Gilead, against Syria. You will take them. The Lord will give you victory. Well, I don't, as, much, as powerful it must, as it must have been for these 400 prophets to agree, it didn't really do it for Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat thought that he needed 401. So he asked there in verse 7, Jehoshaphat says, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? At this point, I'm sure that Ahab's thinking, man, I thought for sure if I brought in 400 that he wouldn't ask for this one lonely guy. But reluctantly, he says, yes, there's one more. His name's Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him because he never prophesies good about me. He never tells me what I want to hear. He only prophesies evil. Well, Apparently, Micaiah's reputation had preceded him. Despite this, Jehoshaphat says, Come on, Ahab, you brought in 400 and you left the one out. Let's hear from him as well. 
So Ahab reluctantly sends an officer of the army to go and get Micaiah to go, come and tell them whether or not they should go to war against Syria. Now the author really sets the scene up in verses 10 through 12, what's going on while they're waiting on Micaiah to come in. It says that the two kings, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, are at the gate of Samaria, and they're really up on their thrones, and they're arrayed in their splendor, and they're looking very high and mighty, and these 400 prophets are giving this prophecy before them out on the ground. They're, they're literally acting out, dancing around. They're using horns of iron and showing how they're going to win the battle if they go to war with them. They're going to they're push them back, push back their enemy and win this war. Probably saying in unison, go up, King Ahab, go up. You will have victory. The Lord will give you victory. Now, not only is this the scene that Micaiah has to walk into in a minute, but the officer of the army gives a little bit of pressure on Micaiah as well. He, he goes and picks up Micaiah and he says, Micaiah, look, we know your reputation. We know that you always like to go against the grain. But literally, all 400 have agreed today. Why don't you just fall in line with the others? Notice, though, in verse 14, Micaiah doesn't waver at all. Micaiah's response he says, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. One commentator noted, Micaiah was determined to be faithful, not popular. Well, Micaiah was true to his word. He walked into the heat of the battle. He walked into these 400 men prophesying, agreeing together in front of the kings. He's asked point blank by the king, well, Micaiah, these 400 agree. What are your thoughts? Should we go to war against Syria, against Ramoth-Gilead? Micaiah's first response, interestingly, is in agreement with the 400. And I think this is a bit of sarcasm on his part. He says, yeah, sure, yeah, go up to war with, with them. The Lord, the Lord will give it into your hand. Go ahead. Ironically, Ahab recognizes the sarcasm. He recognizes that Micaiah is not telling the truth. What's interesting, though, is when the other 400 said the same thing, Ahab believed them. See, I think the problem here is Ahab knew the truth, but refused to obey it. Ahab actually responded in anger to Micaiah's, to Micaiah's uh, prophecy about what they were going to do. And he said, don't lie to me, Micaiah. Tell me only the truth. How many times do I have to tell you? Tell me only the truth. So Micaiah says, okay, you want the truth. I'll give you the truth. His prophecy then consisted of two different scenes that he gives us there. In the first scene, he says, what I see is Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. This is a clear picture of the king's demise if they went to war. And the second scene, I think, is even more disturbing for Ahab and his prophets. He says, I saw a vision of the heavenly court. And in that vision, Yahweh himself was planning the downfall of, Micaiah, of, of Ahab by sending, catch this, lying spirits into the mouths of all of his prophets. Before we get upset and think, what kind of a God would send lying spirits into the mouths of people to drag someone off into war where they're sure to die? Let's not forget what's going on in the story. Micaiah is telling Ahab about this before it happens. God, in his mercy, is giving him a chance to repent right now. And this is not his first chance. The stories before this show that Ahab had many chances to repent. He has heard the truth, and now he has a decision to make. 
You go on and look further there. I think we're down in around verse 24. What rewards does Micaiah receive for being a faithful prophet? Micaiah is publicly beaten. He's cursed at. And he's thrown into prison by the king with orders to feed him just enough food to survive. Ahab confidently called out as Micaiah was bound and carried off to prison, you keep him there until I return. But Micaiah again doesn't waver. Against all odds, completely at peace within himself, he knows that if Ahab returns, then his prophecy is false. And the Lord wasn't telling the truth to Micaiah. He responds just with, well, we'll see, Ahab. We'll see how things turn out. So, Ahab and Jehoshaphat go to war with Ramoth-Gilead, completely disregarding the prophecy of the Lord through Micaiah. And what Ahab does next reveals a lot about his heart. See, Ahab had devised a plan. You can just hear him saying it to King Jehoshaphat. Hey, King Jehoshaphat, oh, mighty King Jehoshaphat, you should go up front and be the leader of this army. You should, you should wear your king's robe and, and be the leader. I'll just be one of your soldiers back here that you can command in the back. See, from the outside, Ahab looked very cool, calm, and collected. He was comfortable going into war. He was going to follow what he thought. But on the inside, he had a heart of fear. And the author continues. It tells us that the king of Syria had commanded his army specifically to find the king of Israel in this war and kill him. So naturally, when they saw Jehoshaphat up front wearing the kingly attire, they went for him. They were headed to kill him. And Jehoshaphat, the last second, cried out for mercy to God, and God delivered him. They turned away, recognizing this isn't the king of Israel. Ahab's in the back going, yeah, yeah, whoa, where are they going? What's going on here? His plan's not working out. And then the author tells us, but a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, struck Ahab between the breastplate and the scale armor. Now, this is a play on words from the author. That arrow was anything but random. What you need to know about that is the scale armor is what it sounds like. It looks like scales. It was worn anywhere that somebody naturally moves, their torso, their shoulders, their arms. And the breastplate is what it sounds like. It's a plate of metal that went over the breast. There were small areas that were unguarded between those, very small areas. And that arrow happened to find that crevice and strike a lethal blow to Ahab. This arrow was not random at all. It was guided by the sovereign hand of God. One author put it this way, there is always a crevice through which God's arrow can find its way. And when God's arrow finds its way, it kills. Now this is toward the end of our story here. Ahab immediately knew this was the beginning of his end. He's drugged backwards, set up in his chariot to really watch his army be defeated. And as he's bleeding out in the chariot, now he's thinking about the prophecy of Micaiah. But you know, at that point, it didn't matter what he thought about the prophecy of Micaiah or the flattery of his own prophets. It was all over for him. Now this incredible, true, and interesting story... I think, I hope, teaches us three things that I, I want to look at about the cost of obedience from the life of Micaiah, and two things, two more things we'll learn about the detrimental cost of disobedience from the life of Ahab. 
And I think when we take those in the context of the rest of Scripture, that we'll see that the risk for following the Lord in obedience is great, but the reward is far greater. The first thing I want you to see in the life of Micaiah is that obedience to the Lord will often lead to loneliness. You realize at the beginning, all of Israel's prophets at that time had come forward together, all 400 of them, and Micaiah is not even invited to the party. And rightly so, Micaiah is that guy at the party. He's the guy that nobody wants to be around. He shows up and they're like, oh, he's here. He's the holy guy who doesn't want to conform to what everybody else is doing. I think the next thing that we see in Micaiah's life is that obedience to the Lord will often lead to pressure to conform to the outside world. We saw this in the scene that Micaiah had to walk into, all these prophets agreeing, the kings waiting on his response. And we saw it really clearly when the officer of the army specifically told Micaiah, you should agree with everyone else. And the third thing I think we see in the life of Micaiah is that obedience to the Lord will often lead to persecution and suffering. You know, the difficulties in Micaiah's life seemed to increase as his faithfulness increased. It went from loneliness and pressure from the outside world to conform to physical persecution, having his freedoms taken away, maybe even being starved to death. Take a second out of the story and think, you know, these costs of obedience are not only in this story, they're everywhere in Scripture. They're all over the Bible. Go with me for a second. Think about, consider Abraham called at an old age who was comfortable where he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, called to go out to a foreign land that was unknown, leave everything he had ever known, and trust in a promise that would take a miracle to come true. Or think about Daniel, Daniel who was faced with being ripped to shreds, eaten alive by lions. He refused to give in on his obedience to the Lord. There's another story from the book of Daniel, popular story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who also refused to bow down to false gods even when they threatened to throw them and did throw them into a fire to be burned alive. There are many stories like this, but I think the best example of the cost of obedience is our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus, who in his obedience to the Father was despised and rejected by men, led like a lamb to the slaughter, and buried with the wicked, the entire wrath of God being poured out on him. You know, this is the king that we follow after. Jesus said it himself in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will likewise persecute you. Well, did this happen? Let's think about it and look at the rest of the early church. Beginning of Acts, right after Jesus ascended to heaven, it begins, persecution. Jesus' disciples are beaten, arrested, and killed. 11 of the 12 original disciples were killed in terrible ways. There's some literature that says that Peter was crucified upside down on a cross, the 12th disciple being exiled to an island to die on his own as an old man. 
Fast forward a little bit in Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death. In Acts 14, Paul is stoned and left for dead in the city of Derby, and he tells his disciples, continue in the faith, saying that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul says it very clearly to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This continued on after the New Testament time. Any student of church history knows that Christians have died and suffered for their obedience to Christ throughout all of history. There's a quote that many of you probably already know that says that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. This is not God's plan B. He's not responding to the suffering. This is God's plan for the growth of his church, that we follow in the footsteps of our master. So why? We have to ask why. Why would we, why would we choose to follow a king when all of this is likely promised for us? Because as I said, the risk is incredibly great, but the reward is greater. Let's take a second and consider the rewards for following Jesus. You know, similar to the cost, rewards for obedience are found everywhere in Scripture. They are summed up well in Psalm 1. If you read Psalm 1, many of you know this passage. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. And here's your reward. It says, He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. whose leaf does not wither. It says, In everything he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like the shaft that is blown away. We see this idea of rewards for our obedience to Christ in the New Testament. Those who obey the Lord receive all kinds of rewards. The fruits of the Spirit, think Galatians 6. Communion with God. James 4, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And think about the rewards we receive the, the armor for the battle to fight against sin and temptations. Think about Ephesians 6. The problem is, we don't often see these things in the lives of people who are obedient to Christ. I think the most important thing is that we often forget that our greatest reward for following Jesus is yet to come. It's not seen in this world. We are not first citizens of America. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom has not been fully realized yet. And while we may experience some of the gracious rewards for following Christ now, and we should be thankful for those, the reward we look forward to is so much greater. You know, it's like that song we sang there at the end, Christ is mine forevermore. That song has been so close to my heart for the past few years. And the lyrics of one of the verses says, Mine are days here as a stranger pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. 
And here's the reward, folks. Mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. What what does this do for us? What does it do for us to realize that our greatest treasure is to know Christ, but we're going to have to endure all kinds of difficulties and trials and tribulations in order to see that realized one day? Well, I think knowing this, church, should prepare us for the battle and give us reason to rejoice in the midst of it. Peter says this exact thing in 1 Peter 4. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we look around right now, our city, our state, our world, and it seems like everything's falling apart at the seams. And I'll be honest, it feels like that a little bit to me as well. We have to remember, we are not those that spend all of our time and energy worrying and living in fear about what's going on around us. We are those who continue in faithfulness. We are those who share the gospel in the midst of difficulties. We're those who do all we can to live a quiet and godly life. We must remember, church, we are exiles on this earth who remarkably can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, like Paul said, knowing that the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Nevertheless, if knowing that the rewards outweigh the risk isn't enough for you, let's take a second and consider the alternative. In the life of Ahab, we see two detrimental costs of disobedience. I think we see first that those who disobey the Lord often face a life of discontent. You know, Ahab ignored the warnings of Micaiah and went into war. And from the outside, like we said, he looked very cool and calm and in control. But the deceptive plan he put in place to put Jehoshaphat in the front revealed that in his heart, he had a complete lack of peace. And notice how this is contrasted with Micaiah, who is losing his freedom, being drugged away to be tortured in prison, but is completely at peace and confident in the word of the Lord. Isn't this the picture we often see in the world? Christians who are obeying Jesus in faith and following him in faith are enduring difficulties, loneliness, pressure to conform, temptations and sin. They're wrestling through so many things and even physical persecution and suffering. But inside, they have joy. They are rejoicing and they have the peace that passes all understanding. But then those who are living their best life now and who are focused on their comforts and enjoyment in this life look cool and calm on the outside and they go home to a heart of discontent and fear and unrest in their souls. And rightly so, because I think the second thing we see, the second cost we see for disobedience in the life of Ahab is the most terrifying, is death. I don't mean just physical death, We all experience that. We know that. 
I'm talking about the eternal death that happens after. We will all live forever, either with God or without. I'm talking about separation from everything good and separation from God for eternity. Imagine with me, if you can, for just a second, think about the worst day of your life. Think maybe about receiving news of an illness that you had or a loved one had or losing a loved one or the guilt maybe you experienced when you did something wrong and you got caught and you knew you shouldn't have done it. And then multiply that feeling you had by a million and have it go on forever with no escape. And that's just a fraction of what it will be like to be separated from a good God for eternity. Paul tells us in Romans and in 2 Corinthians, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we deserve for what we have done. Like King Ahab, we face a divinely guided arrow and we can be certain that God will find the crevice in our armor. And we have a choice, church. We can cry out for mercy to God like Jehoshaphat or we can continue in disobedience like Ahab. Unbeliever here today, this is your time to listen up. God's arrow of wrath is headed in your direction. God's justice against your sin must be satisfied. God is a perfect judge, and he cannot allow sin to go on unpunished. It's not about how big or small your sins are. It's about who you've sinned against. And the Bible tells us that all sin is ultimately against God. But praise God, the good news of the gospel, and this is where you listen, is that just like God sent the prophet Micaiah to Ahab, he sent the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ. Jesus has lived the life that none of us could live in complete, perfect obedience to the Father. And then he took our place on the cross. You know, you and I deserve to be there. He took it in our place, and he died to death that we deserve so that those who place their trust in that, turn away from their sins and place their trust in Jesus, can have his righteousness placed on them and can live in bliss with God forever. You may endure persecutions here, but you will live with a reward for the rest of your life. You can do this today and live. And church, let me encourage you. I know there are some here who know that you haven't been following the Lord in full obedience. You know you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you. You also repent. You know, repentance isn't just for the unbeliever. I think it was Martin Luther who said the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. I'm not talking about a repentance to salvation. I'm talking about trying to restore that fellowship with God. You see, once you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that relationship can never be broken. God did it. It can't go away. But your fellowship can be broken when we fall into disobedience, when we fall into sins, and you repent and ask God to give you the strength again to look at the gospel and thank God for what he's done and live in light of that. And I'm certain in such an amazing church as this that there are plenty here whose lives are more marked by faithfulness than unfaithfulness, more marked by obedience than disobedience, by God's grace. And I thank you for your faithfulness. We should praise God that he's given you the grace 
to be faithful and obedient to him. But I want to just encourage you, let's keep going. Let's do what it says in Hebrews. Lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, listen up, looked to his reward. He looked to the joy that was set before him. And because of that, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. I'm going to pray in just a second. Pastor Nick's going to play. I'm going to give the church, any unbelievers that are present, any unbelievers listening online, a second to respond. Think about what they've heard. Don't wait another day. Pastor Mike will be down here in the front. I'll be right over here. There are plenty of people here at this church who would love to talk to you about Jesus. Don't wait another day. Let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, we bow before you. Lord, you are worthy of worship and praise apart from what you've done, God. But because of Jesus Christ, you are worthy of even more, Lord. And we thank you for sending him to die the death we deserve, Lord, that we might have life. I pray, God, for any unbeliever here who, who is hearing these words, Lord, that they might stop fighting against it, Lord, and give in to you, submit to you, put you as king over their lives, God. Give them the courage to step forward, Lord. And I pray, God, for the church, Lord, that we would continue to be the city on the hill, Lord, that we would look forward to the heavenly city that you have prepared for us. Lord, we thank you for your word, the scripture that, Lord, that cuts us so deep and that helps expose our sins and makes us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together in response. I'll be here if you need prayer, uh, but let's take our time reflecting what's being preached this morning. My foes are many, they rise against me. But I will hold on my crown I will not fear the war I will not fear the storm My help is on the way My help is on the way Oh my God She will not delay My refuge and strength Always, I will not fear His promise is true My God will come through Always, always Trouble surrounding Chaos abounding, my soul will rest in you. I will not fear the war, I will not fear the storm. My help is on the way, my help is on the way. And oh my God, she will not delay. My refuge and strength always I will not fear 
His promise is true. My God will come through always. Oh, my, my. And oh, my God, she will not delay. My refuge and strength always. I will not fear. I will not fear. His promise is true. My God will come through always, always. Jared, thank you, brother. Man, what a great word. How encouraging. Can we hear it for him just for bringing the word? And uh, brother, thank you so much. What a great reminder this is. And, and you and I need to make sure that we don't act surprised when difficulties come up, uh, upon us or persecution comes upon us for being bold in our witness. Uh, make sure, though, if we're persecuted, it's not because of our strangeness uh, or, or because we're harsh, but rather because uh, we're holding and living and speaking the truth of God's word. Amen? Amen. Well, listen, brother, thank you so much. Uh, we love you guys so much. We, we love your family. We thank you for all. We look forward to the day that you guys get to share with us a little bit more about what's been going on as well. But thank you for that word. We appreciate it. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just seeing more and more people, Lord, as time goes on, uh, just gathering together in the house of God. Lord, we pray for all those that are home, that are able to be able to visit with us for one reason or another. God, I pray that they will continue, all will continue to make the decision that is best for them and the, for their families. But Lord, we do miss gathering together as a full family. But God, this is wonderful. Thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for Jared bringing the word to us. God, thank you that we know that Jesus Christ, that you are worth it all, Lord, to be obedient to you above all things. We love you. In your precious name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. All right, we'll see.